Revelation chapter 20. If you want to go ahead and turn there. One of the things that I was reminded of this week as you guys are turning there, I just want to share with you and kind of as we're studying through these end times events, you know, last week when we were going through chapter 19, I shared that, you know, lots of people these days are infatuated with the end of the world, you know, this cataclysmic and apocalyptic movies and books and all those kinds of things that are out there now that are predicting how the world's going to come to an end. And one of the things that I pointed out is, is that we don't, we don't live in, um, in that place that the rest of the world lives in of uncertainty and on how it's all going to happen. God tells us. He makes it really clear. And the book of Revelation <coughs> is a book that accounts these things, and specifically as we've been going through chapter 18, 19, and 20, and then into 21, um, uh, you can go to the website and listen to last week's study, but I detailed uh, a, a, an, an accurate account of end-time events that are going to take place that shows us how the end of all things is going to come to pass and what's going to take place during those, those times. Um, but it all builds to, to as, we, as we were reading about last week, to the return of Jesus Christ and um, our, our position and, and role in that as, as believers, and it shows us what our future is. Um, and, and in chapter, or chapter 20, where we're at today, we're going to see another aspect of how things are going to play out in the end. One of the things that I want to bring in light of that that's not really in, in, the, in the core of the text today, but it's still an overall um, a thought that needs to be in our hearts and in our minds, is that things are going to change for us. And man, that's a, that is a praise the Lord. Um, I was visiting with uh, one of the guys that goes to church here, <coughs> and we were talking about these things. We were talking about just how things are going to change. You know, we believe the Bible teaches that prior to the tribulation, the seven years of God's judgment and wrath being poured out upon the earth, and we see these things that we're reading about. But prior to that, we who have a faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to be raptured out of here. That word comes from the, the, the word, um, the Latin word uh, harpazo, and it means to basically to snatch away. And, and scripture teaches this in place like uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and others, that there's coming a time, an unexpected time, before these events take place, where God is going to um, come for us, where he's going to send his son Jesus Christ for us, and tells us that at the sound of that trumpet, uh, that, that, that in a twinkling of eye, we're going to be harpazoed, we're going to be raptured, we're going to be snatched, caught up, out of here. And there's examples of that, um, both literally in Scripture, and then also figuratively, and one of the cool pictures that we can go back to is, is uh, especially in light of what our, our, our brothers and sisters down in the south are really going through right now with all the rain and the flooding that they have down there. If we look back to the day of Noah, <coughs> we've seen that God snatched them out of the judgment that was going that was coming. And, and he prepared a vessel, he prepared an ark for them, for those who were righteous, uh, uh, Noah and his family. It's a handful of people back in that day. And he saved them from the destruction and the judgment that was coming. And, um, and uh, we have that picture for us, which points us to the rapture of the church. But the thing about it is, is set your mind on heaven, heavenly things, the Bible tells us. And uh, the things which are above, the things that don't pass away. And, and as I was visiting with this guy this week, one of the things that we were talking about is, you know, there's going to be, once we get to heaven, when that day happens, we know there's going to be a feast. Uh, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb, 
and, and we being the bride, he being the groom, we're going to be wed to him, and we're going to be celebrating, we're going to be rejoicing, we're going to be in his presence for that seven-year period of time before, we, before he returns, which we read of in Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 20, where we come back with him, and then we have a job to do when we come. But when we get to heaven, not only are we going to be feasting, it says there's going to be joy forevermore. That's a good thing. Joy forevermore. You know, one of the, 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 the gifts of the Spirit is joy, right? Love, peace, joy. And, and uh, Steve was sharing with us in his study a few weeks ago that, you know, what that really is, is in practice, it's, it's, the, it's the art of celebration. It's the practice of celebration. And I like parties. I mean, there's good food there, there's music, people are usually in a good mood, you know, there's, your, there's people there who you like, um, and, and, and partying is good, and, and joy is that where there's joy forevermore, they're celebrating forevermore, and, and not only that, the Bible says it's going to be sin, no more sin, no more sin. Who here is sick and tired of their own sin? Yeah, who here is sick and tired of other people's sin? <laughs> no more sin. Not only that, the Bible says there's not only going to be any sin, but there's going to be no more corruption as a result of sin. Now, right now it's allergy season. You know what that is? Corruption is the result of sin. I wish I could take my eyeballs out of my head and wash them under the faucet and put them back in to get rid of the itching and the, and the hay fever and and, 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 I mean, those are just minor things. I'm, I've started going back to the gym and, and running. I'm telling you what, this old body of mine is not what it used to be. And it's, and it's getting worse and worse every day. And you know what that is? That's as a result of corruption. And the Bible tells us that in order for us to inherit incorruption, that place where God has taken us, that this body must be cast aside, that this corruptible body must be put aside, and we must take up an incorruptible body to live in a place where there's no corruption. Praise God, we get new bodies. And these are the things that this guy and I were talking about. By the way, we were at the gym when we were talking about these things, and, and we were sharing our woes. But one of the things that this guy shared, and he looked at me, and he just kind of stopped. He said, you know what? This was profound to me, and it was, it was so exciting because I never really looked at it in this light. One of the things that he said, he said, you know what? He said, he actually, he just, in, he didn't blurt out like, he just, we we're just going through it. And he stopped and he thought and he said, he said, failure. And I'm like, what? You call me a failure? No, I didn't say that. He said, failure. He said, there's going to be no more failure. And I thought about that and I thought, man, praise God. No more failure. And as, as, as you guys think about these things, take that in and go, this is just a few of things, a few things of how it's going to be different. This is the joy, the living hope that has been set up before us that we get to hold on to, that we get to lay hold of. It is the joy of our salvation that takes hold of our lives today and reminds us that there's better things to come. I want to encourage you with that this morning as we go through this because even though that's not directly tied to this, it's still about end times things. And we have to understand where we're at, what our position is, and what it's going to be like for us when these things happen. 
And in Revelation chapter 20, as we see, what we see going on is this chapter is really teaching us about a future period of time that is referred to as the millennial reign. You guys heard of that before? Yeah. The, the word millennium is really constructed from two Latin words. The first word is milli, which means a thousand, and annuum, which means a year. And um, in this chapter, as I read through it, you will see that, that a thousand years is mentioned six different times as it accounts the events that are going to take place following the return of Jesus Christ. Last week, we read about that, the return of Jesus Christ. We've seen him riding in on a, on a white horse and, and, and with the sword coming from his mouth and, and him coming in as that mighty conqueror, as that victor. And, and, and coming to defend the Hebrew people and to lay waste to the Antichrist, the false prophet, and these rebellious armies, and the world system, and the apostate things, all of it. He's going to take care of it all. But at that time, other things are going to happen after that. And that's what this chapter is. And if you remember from last week's study... We've seen how Jesus will easily or be, e or, or it's easy for him to defeat the Antichrist. It's easy for him to kill all of these wicked armies. And then what he does is he takes the Antichrist and he takes that false prophet and he casts them, it says, into the lake of fire that's burning with brimstone. Place of judgment. This second coming of Jesus and his thousand year reign, which we're going to read about, which follows is, re, is often referred to as the kingdom age. Now, I, I need to just say this briefly, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but there's a word that's called eschatology. And eschatology simply means the study of, the, the study of end times, the, in, the study of the end of all things. Basically, that's what it means. And, um, but I will say this, is if, if your eschatology is not correct, if you don't have a right biblical view in the regards to how in time things operate what's going to happen it's so important to get these things right because if you don't get these things right if we don't correctly come to the word of god in context and see what it says and uh, receive it for what it says in regards to our our eschatological view es eschatological view what happens is is you get a wrong understanding of who god is and, and this is such an important thing because when, it, when you hear the kingdom age, there are churches out there, very popular churches, who have a wrong view on end time things. And, and they speak of this kingdom age, this, this thousand year reign, in a figurative kind of sense. And, 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 and in doing so, they, I think they do innocently without understanding the ramifications. Maybe they do, I don't know. But for example... Um, it's, it's being taught in a lot of modern-day churches today that in Christian churches, evangelical churches, that you and I right now are living in this kingdom age, in the thousand-year reign. And that's, that's not, they don't believe that's a literal time. They believe that's more of an age that we're living in where Christ, if you read through this, where they say Christ is ruling and reigning, and, and all we have to do is lay hold of that and claim it. But what I just want to, there's, there's so many flaws to that. I, I don't want to go into all of them. I just want to simply point out this. There are reasons, and that there are reasons for the, this thousand-year reign that the Bible specifically mentions. And when you understand what's supposed to be taking place and why it's supposed to be taking place 
uh, during an, uh, why these things are supposed to be taking place during this thousand-year reign, you'll get a correct understanding of who God is. Now, those who believe that the thousand-year reign is already going on also believe, because this is the eschatological view that you have to take, they also believe that the church has replaced God's chosen people, the Hebrew people. It's, it, it ties into the replacement theology where we, as the church, have not just been grafted in, but Israel has been forsaken because they've forsaken God. And God's done with them as a, as a people, as a, as a people group, and as a nation. And, and, and um, I just want to bounce this one thing up to you because if you, if you have that kind of view, you have to come to the conclusion that God is not a, a promise keeper. That God doesn't keep his promises. Because both in the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant that God made with the Hebrew people, and both of those covenants and the promises that are found there, they're unconditional when you study them out. Basically, God said, it's on me. And in those covenants, God points out that they are going to blow it, his people. That they are going to enter into idolatry. That they are going to forsake forsake God, but they're also going to come back. And God said at times, I'm always going to keep a remnant, a people to myself, for my name, God says. It has nothing to do with you. He says, for my name. What does that mean? It's speaking of integrity, right? Your word is only as good as your name. And, and, and you, if, 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 if God is a covenant breaker, and people go, we had a good reason to do so. Well, you know what? Does God not have a good reason to forsake us in light of the covenant that we've been given as well? What trust, what faith do we have in God that he's, all the promises that he speaks are yes and amen? We have none. And so that's just one aspect of, of bringing it back in a thread of going, listen, if you have a wrong, wrong view of how things are going to play out, you have a wrong view of who God truly is. Because I'm here to tell you, God doesn't break his promises. God's not forsaken his people. And part of the thousand-year reign is set, set aside for God dealing with his people. That was a little bit out of my skill of, of, of notes this morning, but I wanted to just expand on that for you. And so as we read through these, chapter 20, which details for us the specific things that will occur during these thousand years, I want you to know that there are also other places in the Bible which also accounts these thousand years, and we're going to look at them because it's, it's about confirmation. When you go through Scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and you're keeping it in context, that's a, that's a very safe way of correct biblical interpretation. But you know what? The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Well, anytime you make a conclusion based upon what the Word of God says, you should be able to support it with other places in Scripture that also talk about it to confirm what you're reading, it's not, it's, it's not confusing in that sense. God wants us to know. And so we're going to be looking at these other places so that we might get a complete and accurate picture of the things that we're reading about here. In light of this, I need to point out, as I was already kind of alluding to a little bit, there are six things, if you're keeping notes, for us to focus on, which explains the reason for these thousand years. You might go, well, why? Why a thousand years? Why not just straight to the judgment, right? Why a thousand-year reign? Why a kingdom age? And for those of you who are taking notes, I'll briefly outline them before we jump into chapter 20. Now, the very first, first reason for, the thousand, uh, for, the, for these thousand years is so that God might fulfill 
the remaining Old Testament prophecies that he made to the nation of Israel. There are specific promises and prophecies spoken about the nation of Israel that have not come to pass that are set apart for the kingdom and age. In other words, the way that you read it often is, is the time when Christ is reigning. Has Christ reigned yet? No. Did, did he want to when he came the first time? Yes. As a matter of fact, we see that on um, uh, that, 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 that at one point Christ rides into to, to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. People are praising him and laying down palm branches and singing Hosanna and calling him the king of Israel. But we know that shortly after that they rejected him. He was betrayed. He was arrested. He was crucified. And he was put to death. The nation did not receive him as their king at that point. Well, there's Old Testament prophecies that speak about the nation of Israel living under the reign of Christ, the Messiah, as king. It's not happened yet, but it's going to. And this thousand years that's coming still is for is in part for that. Now, the second reason for the thousand years is to give a, a, a public display of Jesus' glory to all of the earth. The third is to answer the prayers that have been asked for God's kingdom and God's will to be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. Does that happen today? Sometimes, in some ways, we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, right? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. The Lord Jesus gave us that prayer as a model so that God's will will be done here on earth. But in total or in wholeness, it's not happening. There's the will of the evil one that still takes place and our own will that still gets in the way of God's will being done here on the earth. Well, there's coming a time when it won't be like that anymore. Where it won't be the will of the evil one. Where it won't be our wills or anyone else's will that's being done. It will be... God's will being done here on earth just as it is in heaven. That's another reason for, uh, the third reason for, for, for the, the kingdom age, the thousand year reign. The fourth is to fulfill the promises that Jesus made to us, the church. Specifically how we as his saints will rule and reign with him. Jesus spoke specifically to his disciples in a very numeric way, and we'll get to that in the study, hopefully. Um, but also, in a greater sense, the church, we the saints, we're also called the priests of God. We are told that we're going to rule and reign upon the earth. Well, the thousand-year period of time is that time for which that's set apart to happen. By Jesus' side, under his kingdom. The fifth reason is to bring about, here's a, here's a really, really cool thing, because this is part of what we're looking forward to as a hope that's laid up for us that we will receive. The fifth reason is to so that there will that it, that this this age or this time will bring about the complete redemption of the creation from the bondage of the corruption as has been promised. Specifically one of the places where this is promised is in Romans chapter 8 verses 19 through 22. I want to read that. It says this. It says for the earnest expectation of the creation in other words, he's saying creation has an expectation, all of creation. Because we know that when man sinned, that the curse came not only upon men, but also upon all the whole of creation. And so Paul writes to the Romans, and he says, For the earnest expectation 
of the, of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Now, we don't know exactly what that all means, but we know that that thousand-year reign is this, this where this promise will be fulfilled, that all the creation will be lifted from the corruption and the weight of sin that it groans under now. Just not men, but all the animals, all the rivers, all the oceans, and everything that's in them, the heavens, it's all been somehow corrupted by sin, and yet it's going to be set free. It's going to be restored. Now, the sixth and final reason that I want to point out to you for the kingdom age, the millennial, millennial reign of Jesus, is this. It's, so, it's, it's, it's to give mankind one final trial, one final chance. And I don't even just men in general, but mankind, humanity, to give us one final trial under his sovereign rule. And, 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 and the best way I, I can really explain that is, is if, you, if you speak to psychologists, one of the things that why psychology and Christianity really doesn't fit together, because Christianity, biblical Christianity, teaches that the heart of man is wicked. There's no good in us. Well, psychology comes from the premise that man is basically good, not basically evil. And that, that, that evil comes forth from a man not because of a, a, an, inerrant, an, an inerrant nature towards evil or wickedness or towards sin, but because of the circumstances or the environment that they're in. In other words, don't blame me, it was my mom and dad's fault. When I, was, when I was being raised. When I was being raised, I didn't get all of the chocolate chip cookies I really wanted. And so now, it's, you know what I'm saying? It's that kind of mentality that your environment, your circumstances uh, are the reason for why you have, why you do things that aren't right. Now, yes, they're shaping influences in all of our lives. But, but really, all that is guided from a heart that's evil. The Bible tells us that. And, and so... This kingdom age, what it does is it removes all the excuses for humanity. And we're going to talk about that in, deal, in detail because there's a certain thing that happens during this thousand-year reign that doesn't happen right now and hasn't happened since before the fall. Now, as we read here, I would like you to kind of follow along with me. It says in verse 1, it says, John writing, he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. And a, and, and, and a great chain in his hand, and he lay hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. Just in case you didn't know, as we've been going through the scriptures here through the book of Revelation, I've referred to this passage of scripture a lot because we've talked about the dragon, we've talked about the serpent of old, and, and, and other things. And here it makes it really clear that they're all one and the same, just different names. And, and, and in doing so, with the keys and the chain, it says he lay hold of him and he, and he bound him for a thousand years, in verse 3, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut, and, and, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these, he must be released for a little while. Now, I'm going to talk about that in detail, but I read that and I go, why? Why just leave that guy locked up? 
right? Let's pray. Father, I pray you give us wisdom and understanding into your word. But more so, Father, that we would um, know you more. These things may seem somewhat mechanical at times as we study through this. But again, it truly just reveals you to us. And God, we desire more than anything to know you, to know you more, to experience you. We want it to be all about your son, Jesus Christ. And we know that, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all prophecy, that everything points to, to, to our Lord and Savior. Help us keep that focus. Help us see who we are in you and this wonderful, joyful future that you have set aside for us. Father, let us understand so that and have wisdom so that we too, God, may reach those around us whom we love, whom you love, Lord, who, who are still in a place of, of resistance to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in these verses, John continues to account the things that are going to happen as a result of Jesus' return. That's, that's the mindset right now. These are things that are going to happen um, as a result of Jesus' return. And we see that rather than being cast with the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, like we read about last week, with, with, with the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, we see that there's a different fate for Satan, the devil, the serpent of old. And we see that he, Satan, will be bound and he'll be cast into this bottomless pit and um, uh, at the beginning of... Uh, at the beginning of this king, and at the beginning of this kingdom age, and um, it's that thousand-year reign of Christ that we talk about. Now, this bottomless pit is is mentioned other places in Scripture. This isn't the only place. It's mentioned back in Revelation chapter nineteen or nine, excuse me. Uh, that's that's our first time in the book of Revelation where we read it. And if you remember, in that chapter, we read about the fifth angel of the trumpet judgment who was given the keys to the bottomless pit. And when we read that and we come contacts, it's probably the same angel that we read about here, the one that was in that was uh, sent to execute the fifth trumpet judgment. And um, this angel sounded the fifth, when this angel sounded that fifth trumpet judgment, um, the, 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 the bottomless pit, that we're reading about here, and also in Revelation chapter 19, it says that it opened up, that it was unlocked, and that there was the locust-like demons that came out to hunt the men of the earth for five months, and that they were released at that time upon the earth to torment all of those who had taken the mark of the beast. Um, now, the Greek word that's used here in verse 20 which is also used in, 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 or in, 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 in here in chapter 20 and, and also back in chapter 9 for bottomless pit, is abusos. And um, it literally means the shaft of the abyss. And, and this is important because there's some distinctions I'm going to make in regards to these geographical places that the Bible's talking about that often kind of get confused and maybe interchanged and thinking they're one and the same. But they're not. They're specific different places. And, and this abusos is, the, is, is, is a specific place. And according to Jude, verse 6, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, the abusos, same word in the Greek, it's a prison 
It's, it's, it's a prison place even today for fallen angels. Obviously not all the fallen angels because we know that there are still demons uh, that roam the earth that, that work with Satan. But, but for the most part, uh, we, we see that a, a portion or a majority of those angels, one-third of the angels who fell when Lucifer rebelled against God, that there was many of them that were imprisoned in this abusos by God. And it says, it tells us that they're waiting. They're waiting there in chains until a final judgment when they and Satan, the devil, will be cast into a place that we refer to as hell. And Satan, who has been allowed to roam the earth for all these years, eventually will also be imprisoned there. It's the same place that the Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast into first. Now, we don't know exactly what the abusos is like, but we can detect that it's not a fun place to be. We know that the other demons who are not being held there, they don't want to go there, even though it's not hell. In fact, we see this from the account that is given to us back in Luke chapter 8. You may remember that account. In that account, Luke chapter 8, it tells us about a time that, that Jesus with his disciples went to the land of the Gadareans. Do you remember that? And at that time, Jesus had sailed with his disciples across the Sea of Galilee to the Gadareans. And as soon as Jesus stepped out on the dry land, he was confronted by a man who was possessed by many demons. As a matter of fact, when Jesus spoke to him, he said, they, he answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. And, and, and he had many demons in him. But these, this, this, when Jesus stepped out, what we're told is that when this demon-possessed man confronted Jesus, the demons within him cried out and said this, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Well, what time do you think they're referring to? The time when Christ is going to do away with all this wickedness, with this rebellion. And they know, the demons know. James tells us. James tells us that the demons know that, that their fate and they tremble in fear. They believe. And sadly, a lot of people today have a demonic faith. They believe in Jesus Christ, but they tremble in fear. They don't move to a saving faith. Such was the case for these demons. They knew. And when Jesus spoke, he commanded these demons, this legion of demons, to come out of this man. And in doing so, what we read is that they begged Jesus to not send them into the abusos, into the pit, this place. They begged him to not send them there. But they asked, please permit us to go away into this herd of swines, into this herd of pigs. And as a result... Jesus granted their request, and, and when he cast these demons into the herd of the pigs, we know that the herd as a whole ran off the edge of the cliff, and they died. Now, when we're talking about places like the bottomless pit, it's important to make some distinctions, and these are the distinctions that I was referring to previously that I, I want to really make sure that we all get a grasp on. The first is, is this abusos, the Greek word here for the bottomless pit, the abyss, this is not hell. And Satan and his demons will be kept there only until the day of final judgment. A time of final judgment that we read about at the end of this chapter. 
In addition to the bottomless pit, we know that the Bible also speaks of another place of waiting that's called Hades. Have you ever heard that? Hell and Hades and the Abusos are not the same thing. They're different places. And, 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 and Hades is also referred to as Sheol. They are synonymous. Hades and Sheol. And, and Sheol or Hades is referred to as simply the place of the dead. And the Bible teaches us that Hades or Sheol, the place of dead, is a place where every person who died before Jesus died on the cross, that's the place they went, a place of waiting. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about this place. And from what we read there in that account, we see that Hades has two sides. Sheol has two sides, which are separated by a great gulf. And this gulf separates two groups of people, of those who have ever died. And one side, there are those who have put their faith in God's promise of a Savior. And Jesus refers to this place as Abraham's bosom. You've heard of that, right? Abraham's bosom is a place within Sheol. One side on one side of the, the great chasm there. And, 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 and um, he described that place, Abraham's bosom, as a place of comfort. And these people who were in that place were in Abraham's bosom, and they were waiting there, it says, the Bible tells us, until Jesus, by his death and resurrection, was able to make a way for sinful man to be forgiven and come to the presence of God. You know, where do you 